Hey, it's Mind Rolling. David Silver and Raghu Marcus are back here this week, and uh, we have a special, very special uh, couple of fellows that are going to be uh, talking to us today. And uh, it's unbelievable the timing of this, uh, David, wouldn't you say? Pretty much with uh, yeah. what's gone on in the news in the, in the last week or so. And um, we've got B.J. Wasserman and Jared Levy. And uh, welcome, gentlemen, to our what's, podcast. What's my name, Raghu? Gagan Baba. Sorry. We, uh, everybody, uh, if you've been listening to Mind Rolling, you know that uh, in the recent past, uh, Jared came and got uh, with me and his lovely wife, and we popped around North India in the foothills of the Himalayas, and he got a name. Both of them got new names. And when it first happened, though, he was like, I don't know. It's, you know, Limitless Sky. It's not a bad name, is what it means, Gagen. And I call him Gagen Baba. So now he's insisting on being called that, everybody. So uh, anyone who's out there is friends with Jared. He's no longer Jared. He's Gagen. <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, just, uh, Dave, you go ahead and give a little bit of an introduction to BJ's... Uh, well, a quick one. Uh, BJ's, I believe, the executive director of something incredible called Inside Circle. And um, the reason Raghu said that this was timely because uh, the president last week, um, it's July of 2015, visited uh, prisons, and there's a move to reform prisons and to uh, change the unbelievable rate of incarceration in the United States. I believe it's something like 2.25 million people are incarcerated, which is the size of Houston. And this is, uh, you know, beyond description because a large, fairly substantial proportion of them, of course, are uh, drug-related crimes, non-violent drug-related crimes, and that's what the administration is focusing on. But B.J. Wasserman is uh, running a, a fantastic organization which is uh, doing its very best to ameliorate the condition of people in jail, men's circles, and do a great deal of healing in an area that most of us are not aware of. We're in denial about it. We don't talk about it. We pass prisons and think, woo, don't want to be in there. But how many of us have actually been inside that circle? So Raga and I are very honored to have you, BJ because we know the work you're doing. Thank you. And my first question to you, uh, I have a question. It's based on a, a phrase you used called operationalized transformation. Operationalized transformation using, involving prisoners and your associates. I'd like you to uh, discuss that, to expand on that, and tell us what it is. Great question. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Jared. Jared does actually have another name, but I don't want to throw a wrench in the system, but he was given <laughs> yet another name uh, just two weeks ago. Uh, but we'll, we'll say that for later. Uh, appreciate the question because a lot of the work that we do and what we really strive for is like the hummingbird and just go straight into the nectar of things. And, and so operationalizing transformation um, first of all, my, the founder, Rob Albee, uses a term called Ilyangura, and I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. It's an African term that he, when he asked the shaman, 
you know, what's the word you use for God or for spirit? What is it? And they said, we really don't have one like that. The closest thing to it is this Ilyongura, which uh, can best be translated as the thing that knowledge can't eat. Hmm. And I share that because you're asking me to try to eat with knowledge something around transformational you know, operationalizing transformation. So I am going to attempt it, but just from the outset, really want to say that I can't even put words to what we do. Um, but what it looks like and what Jared recently just beautifully joined us and, and sat in circle with us is we create a circle. We sit in circle and we create a culture, an intention of being authentic, honest, open, real, taking risks, being vulnerable. And in the prison environment, we had, in fact, we at that weekend that Jared was there just 10 days ago in Folsom prison, uh, one of the men who was in our group left the group one day, went back to his cell, and he was brutally stabbed and actually tortured and murdered. And so when sitting in a group, knowing that the man on my left and the man on my right may be gone tomorrow or the next day, when that is heightened, when I'm not asleep to that fundamental reality, the stakes are higher, the standards are higher, the importance of the moment is heightened, and that's part of how we operationalize it. So we create a space that through a number of factors like the ones I've mentioned, heighten the intensity of the moment and thereby inspire authenticity, openness, vulnerability, etc. And what I would say to, to even add on to that is, you know, I've done a fair bit of, um, of men's work outside of you know, the prison environment, um, with, with other circles and, um, other CEOs that are trying to get more in touch with, you know, their humanity to, to bring that to their workforce and, and things like that. Um, I'd never sat in a men's circle and, um, and felt the, the connection and the authenticity and the, you know, transparency that, that these men on the inside would hold us to. Um, you know, I think a lot of people, we went there with about 25, 30 men and, um, you know, a lot of people were going there thinking, you know, we're, we're going to kind of help, you know, the, the, um, the prisoners, the inmates, I think more people from the outside got a lot more out of it than even the guys from the inside. It was very mutual, you know, um, that, that operation, what was the word operationalizing transformation, uh, didn't just happen for the guys on the inside. It was very palpable, um, and apparent with the men from the outside who joined as well. And what I'll maybe add to it is that there was something akin to, and then I'll stop is, uh, Carl Rogers, certain pioneers in the field of psychotherapy and going back to Jung, describe when a group gets together, when two individuals get together and, and or a group gets together. If I don't have an agenda driven, if I show up with my presence and with my awareness in the moment, like we're taught in meditation, that, for example, keeping it simple, if two people are in there, it's as if a third entity 
which is a mixture of the energy between the two meeting, this third entity, this third energy arises and it's different when any two people are together and to start speaking to what is it that's arising in the psychic field when people get together, when a group gets together. So there's something like spirit that starts coming forth and that is really the, the thing that knowledge can't eat that really is critical because the truth is I don't know where it's going. We may introduce a topic to get people thinking about betrayal, for example. Who betrayed you? You know, what was the biggest one in your life? And what was the impact of that? And then we go around in circle and we share that from an open, authentic, vulnerable place. And things come from that. You know, uh, energies come from that and the group as a whole moves according to that. Um. What? How does this actually get uh, set up, BJ? Do do the uh, the administration um, um, do they handpick these these inmates, or is there a sign up? How how does it happen? And and from and is there a variance to the degree uh, severity of their terms, crimes, and so on? Is it a mixed group, or is it how does it work? It is a, it's a mixed group of ages. <clears throat> uh, New Folsom Prison is a maximum security level four prison. Most of these guys have murdered. Um, so they have similar, similar crimes that they've committed. Um, they have varying time left on their sentence. One man who was uh, in prison for over 42 years was just released. He was in our group. Uh, you know, there, there's guys who still have 17 years on their sentence in the group, and there's a guy who's hoping to get out over the next six months. So that varies. Okay. It originally started, it's it's not mandated, it's completely uh, optional. It's something that you only do if you're interested. And in order to get in, because the confidentiality is so critical, that the only way to join the group is if someone in the group already is willing to vouch for you. And typically what that would look like is, let's say I'm in the group and I heard Jared is a good guy and I'm gonna say, let's, he, I want him to come in. This guy's gonna hold it with us and then we let him in. Uh, and that's the only way it happens. You can't just walk in off the yard. Um, there is no sign up. It's entirely done through people vouching for each other. So the other, the other piece of diversity, too, to bring into it is, I mean, there's guys, there was white guys, uh, Latino guys, uh, black guys. And um, it was really interesting <clears throat> because, you know, these guys in group are sharing, you know, I mean, hugging, you know, crying together, yelling together. It's, it's really beautiful um, coming together. But uh, the one guy who actually is, is getting out in a few months was showing me um, the yard. Uh, and saying, well, that's where the North Mexicans hang out. That's where the Southern Mexicans hang out. That's where the black guys hang out. This is where the white guys hang out. We switch time on the courts. I mean, it's all very racially divided in there. But right when they get into the chapel um, where they're doing this work, uh, that that completely melts away. Hmm. Yeah. And the administration themselves supports the racial discrimination in order to protect the interest. So in other words, you would never have a African-American man and a white person in the same cell. 
if those two races were at war, and in fact, a couple days before we showed up, there was a good chance we weren't going to be let in because there was an interracial stabbing on the yard that we were going on to. And so if you look at whites and blacks in this example, like gangs, uh, if there is tension between them, if all of a sudden I'm white and he's black and we're in the same cell, the way that my gang can get at his gang is through us two because we're interfacing. So they would never allow that. You're only going to have whites and sell with white people and blacks with blacks and Latinos with Latinos. Wow. And that's rigid. That, that doesn't change. Yeah. And that supports the systems that are in play there. Is that typical of maximum security jails around the country, would you think? Yes. Yes. See, these are things that we don't know, those of us that haven't done time. And that's why this is such an important subject, really, because people, you know, they just, it's very simplistic the way most people are, I think, about jails, you know, did something wrong, lock them up. Mm -hmm. And I, I found that with people I was surprised, you know, all kinds of liberal-minded people in other ways say that because they say, what else are you going to do? They don't think about the horror of actually being in there. And this is one of the things that I, there's a quote, a, a, a phrase that um, I saw in your video, which was, I think, simple and fantastic, which is the phrase, hurt people, hurt people. Hurt people, hurt people. And it's, you know, mm -hmm. the opposite is true. Healed people, heal people. And mm -hmm. so both of you from, Jared, from your recent experience and BJ from your whole experience, uh, how do you get people who are deeply damaged, challenged by circumstances, poverty, violence, whatever, how does that soften up uh, via the circle? And how quickly does that happen as a rule? I'll give it a shot. Um, <clears throat> well, so you, what you're kind of speaking about, another way of looking at it is the victim-perpetrator dynamic. And within an individual, like with me, the moments that I've been most assertive, confrontational, the moments that I perpetrate the most are psychologically connected directly. The roots are in the places where I was victimized. So let's say I was, my brother used to mess with me and put me in positions where I would feel embarrassed, ashamed, uh, powerless. And my acting out was directly related to those times when I felt the opposite. So I become a perpetrator to protect that part of me that felt victimized. There's a sense of, I'm not gonna let that happen again. And the way to not let that happen again is, I need to do what was done to me. That's where power is. That's where strength is, etc. So to start unhooking that, the interesting thing about the operationalized transformation is that we create a space where it's actually safe and not only safe, but encouraged to say things like, you know what? My dad used to, used to really do a number on me and he used to burn my hands on the stove and just speaking to that and being vulnerable in starting to help men recognize that their perpetrator, the part of them that is angry and acts out and violent, is actually more honestly expressed by going to its core, the place where they were themselves victimized. So we're always encouraging, 
each other to stick with that vulnerable place. And rage is often the doorway into that place. Uh, I, as a man, in order to grieve, sometimes I need to rage and wail on something and, and hit a punching bag and exhaust my hard exterior in order to get up to a place of collapse and surrender. And that's a lot of the kind of work that we do. And then before you know it, now I'm a father, I have a nine-year-old boy, and a part of me that used to want to say, don't do that, and I would even consider striking, I can much more easily look at, you know what, I'm worried about your teeth, and you're not brushing your teeth, and you're saying no to me, but I care about you, I want you to brush them, let's do this. And I can do it in a soft way instead of, you damn it, don't listen, and going the other way with it. So we train each other in choosing that surrendered place. And what's the receptivity on an individual basis to, to exactly what you're saying here is a powerful thing, surrendering and being receptive to a completely different perspective and way of uh, living life and seeing life. What's the, what is the receptivity that you've found? You know, and Jared will speak to it, but the, the culture that we've created in Folsom, for example, and kind of like the culture that Jared and I have created, we just went and got a coffee and we weren't all aggro and aggressive, you know, and someone cut us off. We were compassionate and kind and let others go in front of us. And, and in a similar way, uh, in the prison, when, let's say, men who are joining the group for the first time see a very powerful man who is strong, articulate, but sharing something vulnerable and speaking to, man, I hurt right now because someone put, you know, someone, someone put their hands on my cousin. You know, that was something that was shared. Someone who was in prison, his cousin, was it his cousin? His daughter? His daughter. His yeah. daughter, yeah. So a man in prison's daughter was on a date. And the man who was dating her uh, abused her in some way and took her money. And he was able to first in a safe place without hurting himself or anyone else. And that's one of the rules. He was able to get in touch with his rage and his sense of powerlessness and his sense of guilt. I'm not there for her. If I had been there, this wouldn't have happened. If I had looked that man in the eyes, if he knew dad was at home, he wouldn't have done this. He was able to express the anger in a safe place without acting out, without hurting anyone with it, and then get to a place of just that deep regret and that soft, deep regret and remorse. And at the core of it, no one's to blame but himself. He took an action that landed him in prison, and he is ultimately responsible for it. And, and we don't let anyone not see it that way. None of us are victims, and we empower everyone to take responsibility. Uh, so I hope that answers that question. Yeah, and there was, you know, some of it was around rage. Other was, a, um, you know, there was a man there who was kind of victimized by his attorney 26 years ago that took advantage of the family, and he's been in prison ever since because of what this attorney did. He didn't realize that attorneys could be crooks, you know. Um, <laughs> and I uh, hope my dad's not listening. But, uh, you know, um, 
and and you know we he he went off and and kind of talked about that and how he was upset for himself just fully trusting in this attorney and he just kept going along with what the attorney told him to do in front of the judge he didn't even speak english that well he was 18 years old and then you know ended up in in uh, prison he's been there ever since great guy i mean really kind guy and we all sat there in circle and took his burden you know, it was a very kind, it was, it was, it, so it wasn't on the flip side of the aggression piece where some people need to get out of aggression. This was more of um, getting out some sadness and some regret and some, um, and forgiving the attorney and forgiving himself, you know, um, and, and, and standing in a circle with, you know, 15 other men, some that are on the inside, some that are on the outside, some with means, some without, and everyone, you know, holding him. Um, and, and really being there for him and taking that burden. And I mean, at, at, you know, at the end, he's in, he's in absolute in tears. This, this meant everything to him because, you know, in the, in prison, you know, showing vulnerability, uh, could get you killed. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a complete lack of humanity in there. You're, you're basically, um, are back to animal instincts of survival. And, uh, and, and so when they step into this chapel, and we first had a check-in with all 50 guys. I mean, it's the inmates that are, we call, you know, the men in blue, as, as they're, they're called, holding us to a level of authenticity, saying, you know, we're here. I'm, I'm not here as a spectacle for you. So you can go back and tell your friends you went to Folsom Prison and, you know, get a shirt that said, I survived Folsom Prison or something. <laughs> you know, we're, we're here to get deep with you. Um, and to, to really, this is, this is, uh, bring a, a level of humanity that we deeply need to be in touch with for their own survival, um, and, uh, for their own kind of renewal, you know, as, as humans. So, I mean, uh, yeah, unbelievably powerful exercises. And I want to say too, just to, to really credit BJ and a lot of the facilitators that were there, you know, I've done a, a ton of, of, um, work, uh, you know, uh, self-work, uh, compassionate work, couples work, all kinds of stuff. These facilitators, it wasn't exactly a set, um, you know, exercise, like you didn't know what was coming out. <laughs> it was, there's no setting. Uh, it was going around a circle and people bringing forth significant traumas uh, in their life. And then the facilitators very skillfully holding the space and bringing about exercises that the rest of the men participated in um, and, and held that space. And for some men, it took you know, 20 minutes. And for some men, it took two or three hours. Um, because, you know, uh, for instance, a, a guy like me who, who, you know, uh, it, it was, it's tough to get to that really vulnerable space when you're walking around and you're, you know, running a company and you got to be strong for the rest of the, the people that are around you and in, in various ways, family work, that kind of thing. I mean, it takes a while to, to break down, you know, guys like that. Um, others that had been there before, it was like they were, you know, right into it. They're ready to rock <laughs> and going into these exercises, you know, head first. So just, yeah, amazing work. You know, there's an interesting paradox that just came to me that I'd love to share, which is <clears throat> so the way that we build trust in there the first day is we have these strangers coming together. Right? We have men like Jared who've never been inside in this very tightly close-knit bonded group that's been meeting weekly, some of these men for years. And the paradox is that the thing that creates trust isn't someone like Jared standing up and saying, this is my title, this is my status, this is my income, this is how many homes, cars, and it's not that at all. In fact, they don't care, they don't wanna hear it, it doesn't matter. 
What's paradoxical to me is that, you know, what does connect them is, hey, man, where are you out of integrity in your life? Or where are mm -hmm. you hurting in your life? Mm -hmm. And where are you in prison in your life? What are those limited beliefs that you have running right now that put you in a prison? And the paradox is, wow, that's what can bond us. If I reveal and share kind of <laughs> what I think is like what I try to hide from people typically in society, what I don't want anyone to know. In fact, that's one of my favorite questions. What's the thing you don't want us to know? Ragu, you know, right now, what don't you want us to know here? What would be the worst thing that you think you could share to this group right now? And, and I'm not asking you to answer, but when you do, and we sit in a circle and you go there, you can hear a pin drop. Mm, wow. You know, I'm paying attention. When you tell me, you know, about all your cars and wives or whatever else you got, it's really not, I'm just not that interested. So I felt like sharing that because it also speaks to, you know, how do men get vulnerable? The paradox is that I think all boys and all men are longing to connect over things that are real. And part of that is being authentic and vulnerable and being able to say, I hurt, you know, I'm hurting or I don't have the answer. It's interesting because that exercise that you just brought up, was an exercise mm -hmm. uh, when I was a kid and I first went to India. Um, I don't know if Jared's told you any of my backstory, but um, we were there with Ramdas, who I, I'm assuming you know who that is. Um, and that was an exercise that we did. Uh, we were staying at a uh, retreat. We were retreating up in the high Himalayas. And he would sit with every person at one point every week we would do this exercise and he'd sit you know not more than four or five feet away and uh, with those big blue eyes of his that uh, he would get into this place uh, of complete mm -hmm. utter vulnerability absolute vulnerability and he would say whatever it is that you can't tell anybody and can even and even have a hard time uttering the words that you are the most afraid of, say it now. And, uh, and the interesting thing is that because we were in India, the walls were completely thin, and everybody next door and below heard everything everybody was afraid to say. And, of course, uh, much of it ended up being, you know, from a, a, a very... Uh, one-dimensional place because uh, we have such common, common fears out of this culture. And, and I would imagine that that happens too in these groups, that there's a similarity to, the, to what people, what these men share. Yes, and, it's, and I'll just quickly sort of reflect on the therapeutic process itself. You know, my own experience in therapy was a similar kind of building trust to get to a point where I felt with this individual that I can start sharing things. And over time, similar to this group, over time, what becomes really clear to me is the thing that I lead with, my check-in, when I'm scanning my being for what am I going to say now, I'm actually looking for that thing that Ram Das was asking you about. I'm looking for that and I'm leading from that place. And that's, again, going back to this 
operationalizing transformation. When we create a culture where Jared's like, shit, I'm sure I got something. I got some dirt in me some way. You know, I've got something that hurts that I still got to get to. What was it? And when we're digging for that place and looking to share it from an authentic, not from an ego place, but really from a place of, I want to shed some light on something I've been carrying around maybe for 40 years. Uh, that starts speaking to the culture that we create. Mm. Mm. Now, most of these, from what I, what I gather, most of the, the guys you talked to were in there for a long time. They're not coming out soon, or they may be in for 25 or life or whatever. What do you think about the osmosis of this with other, other guys in there who don't come to the circle, but they have to transact with still? Is there, in fact, do you believe that, I would think so, there's a positive a ripple effect, even for those that are not ready for the circle? Or the opposite, really. Or, or they, you know, they would be... Uh, categorized in a certain way as and vul, you know made vulnerable yeah. it could yes. be the opposite right what is what what is the experience i think they're i think they both are true but we do have uh quotes as well and anecdotes from prison guards and people who have spent years in the prison being exposed to it who have said things like whatever you guys are doing in there please keep doing it you know this is a safer place because wow. we believe that what you're doing is rippling out. And the original intention of this group was to actually, and what we did do, and I wasn't part of it yet, but what Rob did do so masterfully is he was, he they went out of their way to find not just the people from different races, but the what they call shot callers. Basically, the CEOs of the criminal organizations were the originators of the group. So they got the top guys in each of the races to sit down together. And what almost instantly started happening as they started sharing their stories and connecting to one another, these guys were the shot callers. These are the ones who with a nod or a wink could get someone killed on the yard. And they started saying, you know what, send them over to me. Let me talk to this guy and things like that. So the level of violence has radically shifted on the yards that our programs are on. Really? And I'll also say, though, you know, BJ mentioned how a couple days before uh, this stabbing happened um, and uh, the whole place was on lockdown. I mean, you guys can't imagine. We walked through like four gates and I mean, there's no one anywhere. Like usually there'd be, you know, buzzing in the yard and all kinds of people over the place. It was like a ghost town because everyone was on lockdown. So everyone's in their cells. And then and these even these inmates thought, you know, they weren't going to get the opportunity to do this. And they knew there was a bunch of guys coming from the outside to, to do this program with them. And then, you know, as their names got called. And they had to come down and go to the chapel to meet with us. I mean, they got this level of, you know, excitement that they got to be a part of this, that they still got to come because this is so important to them. There was also a level of um, courage that it took to walk past the other cells where all these other guys are locked in, you know, and there's why, why does he get to go down to the, you know, down to the chapel to, to do this work? So it, it certainly takes a level of, um, of courage as well to, to be a part of this because they are very openly sharing things that I'm sure if others, you know, knew wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be uh, great for them. Mm -hmm. There was a man in our group who shared the specifics of his crime that weekend for the first time. 
and it's a particular crime. He he attempted to murder his his own mom um, through horrific and deeply tragic circumstances. Fortunately, he was not successful with it, and she did not die. And he's planning on seeing her soon when he when she gets out when he gets out. Uh, but that crime alone, in 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 his own race, knowing that that's his crime, his own race could he he's making the tribe vulnerable by coming in there with that kind of a crime. So it can be his very own sort of gang members who might compromise him because he presents sort of a weak link. And uh, him sharing that information literally puts his life on the line if it were to leak out. And at the same time, not sharing it along the line of Ram Dass's cue is further imprisoning the guy. Yeah. So they've cre- we've created, they continue to create a space where that's the level of confidentiality. Could I, sh- you think I could share the reason why he shared that? Sure. So, you know, and confidentiality is a big part of this. So that's why we're kind of being nebulous about, you know, a lot of the, the stories and things. But um, this particular story really touched me because it was a man from the outside of significant means um, that, uh, uh, you know, it took a while to break him down and, and really get in to figure out what were the traumas, you know, that, that were really affecting him, um, that were poisoning him in his ongoing life. And, and you know, um, it kind of broke down to some some mother, you know, issues. I mean, I, I want to say like 90 percent of the issues were either, you know, daddy or mommy issues mm-hmm. in some way. Right. Yeah. Um, and so these were mom issues and it was anger around how he had been treated, um, not mistreated, but overly nurtured, you know, in some ways, and did an exercise uh, that really let that anger out in a, in a, in a, it was unbelievable to see this man who was, who was pretty reserved, um, really let go. I mean, you know, the, the way the facilitators skillfully kind of encouraged him into a safe space to really let that anger go. I mean, you could tell he'd been hanging on to this for 20, 30 years and he let it go with all of us there holding the space for him. And it was about an hour later that the gentleman that BJ just brought up who had tried to hurt, actually hurt his mom in the real world said, you've inspired me to say this. I'm going to tell you something I haven't told anybody of the reason I'm in prison. And so, you know, and that, that's, you can't, uh, that's, that's the kind of, um, story that, there was there was like 50 of those moments in you know in the course of two days in there so uh it, it was amazing to see both the the guys from the inside that had issues and i'm looking at they're working through and really resonating with me with issues that that i've had or traumas i've dealt with in my life and then watching also these other men from the outside res you know the, in, resonating with the with the men in blue on the inside so it was it was really uh you know a bridge the a two-way bridge it was no in no way was it you know singly helping the guys from the outside singly helping the guys from the inside that's why this program to me is so special you know it's like um i mean i said you know san quentin i live up in marin and san quentin's right there and they do a program there as well i mean i was saying to my wife when i got out i said all i want to do is go back Mm-hmm. you know, into the inside and do another, uh, do some more time with, with some, with some more guys, because it just felt so good to, you know, um, get really honest and really transparent with a, with a group of guys who are doing the same. Beautiful. Well said. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, do you, 
another thing that we've been connected to in the past, Ramdas, uh, most especially, is something called the Prison Ashram Project. Uh, he worked on this, I think, starting in the mid seventies, and basically uh, they would also go in and confer. I don't know if it was on a group process. Uh, I don't quite remember. Mostly, I I know that they would provide. Uh, methodology and um, uh, books and, and CD, uh, cassettes, whatever it was back then, for people to be able to uh, be uh, connected with their interior lives to develop uh, a, a way to uh, deal with what you're talking about through a meditative process. Is, there, is, is that coming up? Is, is there part of the facilitation to to help in any way uh, in, in that respect? In terms of me- meditation specifically or? Yeah, or, or even, even not just meditation specifically, but uh, helping people with a vantage from which they can see where they are. Obviously, they're sharing, you know, very vulnerable and intimate things. Um, and uh, and the help there is the facilitation to understand that uh, they are uh, at, at a level not this isn't who they are deep down. Is there is there a way that you facilitate them connecting with the fact that this is not who they are deep down, and that there is another reality possible for them to see the world? Absolutely, yeah, and it is, and it's it's fascinating to me the tie-ins to meditation because what i was sharing at the beginning is our intention is to show up and sit in circle and be fully present which means not in my mind not in my thoughts just literally feeling and being very similar to what meditation teaches just being present and being in the moment and following the breath or whatever the particular technique is so we absolutely uh kind of base ourselves in that present moment so in in that respect but it's coming from a place of authenticity and being present being aware of my body being aware of sensations being aware of my emotions we do a check-in which is all about where am i right now we encourage people don't think about it while the other guys are sharing and don't even think about it while the guy right in front of you is going Mm. wait until it's your turn and then that's my moment to what am i feeling Right, and it's it's that in the moment. It's based in the moment. Um, so the mindfulness-based psychotherapeutic modalities and practices are really what we bring, and I think that's the tie-in yeah. to meditation. And I I will say too that I've heard it said, and I can see arguments for prisons being the monasteries of the West, and it's because they're of the 2.25 million men incarcerated, there is. A handful of them, and maybe it's 5,000, who knows how many it is, maybe it's 20,000, but that's a lot of people, five or 20,000 men, who are using their time the way I would if I was in there. They're doing yoga, they're practicing meditation, they have a monastic lifestyle that they have created because, (laughs) shit, I actually wouldn't mind it on some levels. Take care of my meals, give me a little cubicle, another place where I can lay my mat down, and there's a part of me that's actually happy for five years. I really would like to do that, not in those circumstances, of course, but these are guys who have embraced 
the situation and they've looked at it like I'm going to do what Ram Das did, but I'm going to do it in this monastery. Mm. This mm. is mine. So you do bump into people like that uh, as you go through. There's guys like that in our group. Yeah, wow. that's amazing. Yeah, the guy in our in in our group that, I mean, you know, he he ended up in a southern uh, Mexican gang when he was young because that's what you did in this neighborhood to stay safe. Ended up uh, murdering somebody. Um, went to prison. Um, has and and it, through prison has found his way to Buddhist meditation and yoga. He runs the yoga and the Buddhist meditation. Showed me his resume uh, that he wants to get out of prison and start a, a nonprofit that gets kids out of gangs uh, by getting them into sports and yoga. Um, and you know myself and another man from the outside that look you know became close with him kind of looked at each other and said man I'd hire this guy tomorrow like <laughs> you know he'd be the most loyal and hardworking and you know very kind and I mean he just he just said you know you're you're sold a you, you have these um, you grow up with some significant traumas uh, from from mom or dad a lot of times you're in an underserved community um, and you just fall into this lifestyle where you think that's the only path and he said once he went to prison it was just he just realized what bullshit he was sold and how he was completely brainwashed into this gang mentality um, and that uh, you know all he wants to do with his life is is help other kids from making the same decision mm. I once was uh, had the good fortune to be a driver for a Tibetan Lama that had come to the states in California, um, and to to just give some teachings and so on, and I didn't know him, and it was through a friend, and his name is Garchen Rinpoche. He was in prison uh, by the Chinese twenty five years, something, a long, long, long time, and he would, and he, and I remember talking to him about it, and. You know, you always hear stories of, of these kinds of evolved people who say, I was not blaming anybody. I was forgiving these. In this case, of course, it was somebody who had done nothing but be a Tibetan Lama and, and maybe marched a day or something. Um, and he's, And it's like you never... You hear this stuff, but to stand in front of somebody who actually says these things to you and you are you completely trust 100 percent that he has absolutely evolved to a point where he is not angry even at the captors, at, at the people that kept him in prison. And in fact, what happened to him and this goes along with, you know, the people you're talking about who say, okay, I'm here, I'm going to take advantage of this uh, and, and do what I can to get my interior life um, present for me. He met um, another lama who transmitted these particular teachings to him, and he became, at some level of realization, I wouldn't know what it was, he was a pretty, he is an incredible lama, and uh, and he just was able to turn on a dime, turn the, the tables from being a victim to, uh, to being incarcerated, and, and, and he was free. He was free. <laughs> he was inside, but he was free. And, yeah. and I, I, you know, the, obviously <laughs> this is part and parcel of, of the work that you 
are doing from what I'm hearing and what I've read to uh, allow people to understand that there is a way for them to to get free uh, within this situation. Um, so, Yeah, I'm actually, I'd love to just piggyback that thought. Part of what we do, again, going back to the original question of operationalizing transformation, because really that's the key is, as far as I know to the whole thing, is we provide a space for all of us to go in and touch the place of wounding, right? To go back to that, to the roots of being victimized, whatever the wound is and whatever the message is I took on, I'm not lovable, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, whatever that is. But we go back to that place and that's the place that violence comes from, that trigger, that emotional trigger, that's kind of like PTSD trigger spot. We create a space, a safe place and we contrive a situation so that men go to that place. But here's the key. By going there, they get to choose, do I want to get angry and violent or do I want to be honest? Do I want to soften? Do I want to be vulnerable? And we, by giving them a repeated opportunities to touch that place, over time, they literally are rewiring their brain. They literally are moving from that place of angry at him, judgment of him outside of me to the llama that you just described. You know what? This guy who did this to me, going back to the lawyer who burned the man, this guy, like he is my best opportunity for me in my life to practice compassion, to practice patience, to practice forgiveness. So all of a sudden that enemy you know, the Dalai Lama would put a picture of his enemies on his altar. It's the same kind of thing. The enemy is actually the best opportunity for me to grow and practice. If I'm just hanging out with the four of us and we can just be high-fiving all day and it's all good, throw someone in here who knocks my coffee off and smacks me in the head, like then I got to practice compassion. I don't need to practice much hanging out when everything's going my way. Throw something in the system that gets in my way, that's when I'm challenged. And that's when you're going to test my mettle. And so we contrive situations to test these men's mettle so they get to practice reforming new habits, new ruts in the mind. And instead of reacting to that triggered place, responding, mm. right? It's responsibility, the ability to respond to those triggers. And we, and in order to do that, I need to go back there weekly and keep hitting that spot and train it. Just like sitting on the cushion. It doesn't happen once, twice, or a hundred times. I need to keep going to build that muscle. Yeah. Do you, this is something that goes on every week, that you have these groups every week? There's a three-hour group every week, wow. yes. And we do intensives when the group's ready and when there's newer people in the group, we do intensive. We'll bring men in from the outside to do a deeper dive. And so there gets to a point, as I said, where we kind of we create this sacred space and men are putting their toe in and then they put their ankles in and then they're kind of up to their knees. And some guys are like, I want to dive in, you know, like I'm ready to just dive in. And in order to do the deep dive, that's when we create a bigger circle we create more time three-day intensive four-day intensive and that's when we go deep and that's what jared was a part of right is Can there ask yeah a question? um people listening to this are, are going to be very you know moved i moved just sitting here uh how sort of across america is this 
I mean, you're talking about California, Folsom, San Quentin. What about Sing Sing, where I live, or, um, you know, upstate where the guys escaped at Dunamara? Have you managed to create circles in other prisons that can sort of simulate this, do this? Part of my stepping into this executive director role was being around this amazing work that was really seven, eight years ago, almost entirely limited to Folsom Prison. And part of the audacity of my step was, you know what, I, I think this needs to be everywhere. And I believe we can get funding to provide a living to people who want to do this work so we can actually scale and, and have more groups and expose more men to this work and women. Uh, to answer your question, there is not a lot. Um, there is, so some of the men who came into Folsom Prison with us went back to their communities. One went to Salinas Valley here in California. One is in uh, Boston. There's another group outside of Minnesota, and they do have circles. So there's a few of them. These are guys that we collaborate with, and a couple of them were on this weekend with us. Um, so we have a few circles that are kind of leaking out. Uh, I started one up in San Quentin just two years ago. We're looking at spreading. But part of our intention, uh, we're an organization. We're a nonprofit, a 501c3 called the Inside Circle Foundation. It's insidecircle.org. And we're looking to raise money so we can start to – we have facilitators. We have manuals. We have training. Uh, we have gifted individuals. And we have former inmates, and this is part of what's exciting, is we can hire and bring in former inmates who spent decades inside, whose facilitation is a lot better than mine because they can lean in in a way that I can never because they can say, I know what it's like. And they really do know what it's like. So we've got an army of men waiting in the wings for us to deploy and part of our vision is to make more of these circles happen and um so yes and and i want to say too you know so we had a dinner after the first day and there were a couple uh former participants of the program one guy i was lucky enough to sit next to he went into prison when he was 20 he came out when he was 63 um and that was last year and uh you know he came out he he was uh first doing some you know um doing roofing and, and stuff like that. Now he's got a job doing what re-citizenship for um, the city of Sacramento. And uh, so he's helping kind of reintroduce inmates that are, that are free into society. Uh, that's the position that he's gotten to, to take on. And, and the really beautiful thing there that he imparted to me was he would have never gotten to the point that he got to without this kind of a rehabilitation program. Like the kinds of rehab programs they're offering in prisons right now um, are, are pretty lackluster, you know. Um, and so this kind of work from a, from nonprofits from the outside that can come in um, is is needed, you know. And 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 like BJ said, I think you know um, part of this weekend and and the reason I got pulled in, you know, there was. 25 men 
30 men, something like that. 30 came about, together, about yeah. 30 men came in and there were men of, of significant means. There were, there were people like me, you know, we've got a marketing agency that potentially could help, you know, spread this to, to other uh, markets and things. And I, I see a lot of different nonprofits and projects. I get, you know, passionate, excited about every day by something Be, being a part of this experience and actually seeing it just turned me on in a way that I, I just said, I, I want to help this in any way I can, mm. you know? Um, so whether that's, you know, financially or it's bringing just me personally to circles or uh, helping the organization to grow and uh, expand their impact across the country. I mean, that's, you know, and, and they're really set in a beautiful way to do that. The, the two people that were running these circles, Rob, who is a, a former um, inmate. Uh, who also studied in Africa with various shamans and things like that. And then uh, James um, McCleary, mm -hmm. who's a psych psychologist out of uh, Chicago. I mean, unbelievably skilled men, you know, and, uh, and, and I think um, the program right now from where I'm sitting is in, in you know, a, really a beautiful place to start scaling across the country. Well, good segue for everybody out there who's listening to this and, um, feels connected in any way and wants to support, go to insidecircle.org. Uh, I'm sure there's a contact form there that you can get in touch with, uh, with, uh, BJ and, uh, um, and obviously this is, uh, as we said at the very beginning of the podcast, this is a very timely thing. The first sitting president who ever went to a prison, uh, is not a nothing. And, um, and the kinds of things that he said and what he's trying to do uh, is is at least a start and maybe would make um, make the whole uh, idea of what uh, Inside uh, Circle is doing uh, more palatable for people of power who are in fear of doing anything but just closing the door behind them on these people and uh, that have been incarcerated. So uh, this is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for us to present this to, to everybody. And we thank you, BJ, and thank you, Jared. And uh, um, we'd love to uh, keep in touch and, uh, you know, do this again uh, and get even more in-depth, maybe bring, bring in a couple of other people that... Uh, uh, that have uh, have really benefited from from the experience of Inside Circle. Absolutely, thank you, thank you, Jared, for connecting us. Very nice to meet you, gentlemen. And um, please do send me your emails. Join us, contribute, however you can. We're ready to go. And you'll find out more information. We'll link it all up on MindPodNetwork.com and and David and uh, my uh, our mind rolling podcast so uh, you can go there and you'll find out more about it and uh, again thank you guys this has been wonderful absolutely wonderful David thank you yeah I would recommend that people go to Inside Circle website and there are there's a subscription module there and uh, this is something that uh, needs all kinds of input in terms of funding and uh, in what better cause could we have for uh, humanitarianism, humanization of people we've judged to allow, I mean, just sitting here talking with you guys uh, brought up all kinds of things in my head that I'm hurting from. I, I, I had a nasty attitude towards someone earlier today. I didn't speak it. I was really pissed off with this guy. <laughs> I went off to meditate and it went away. <laughs> <laughs> 
it faded. I've been meditating for a hundred years. But, you know, just talking with you just had that effect on me. And I'm out. And so it's not quite so crucial. But for men, and hopefully women too later, uh, this is a, an amazing and completely altruistic dynamic. So thank you. Thank you, guys. Namaste. We will uh, rejoin. Thank you so much. Love you. We'd love to come back. (laughs)